Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. So if you've got your Bibles, if you'd like to turn to Luke chapter 14, so either open them up or turn them on, to Luke 14 verses 25 to 33. So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So Luke 14, starting at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able... He will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would teach us by your spirit this morning. These are difficult verses, but I pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to you. Help us to engage with you, maybe new ideas, new concepts, new experiences of who you are. Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done this morning in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So I wonder what you think about the first five books in the Old Testament. This is the Torah, or the Pentateuch, you might know it by, which we have translated into English as the law. Some Christians have the idea that with Moses and the Ten Commandments and all those rules in Leviticus, that those biblical books are just full of harsh and demanding commands. But, praise the Lord, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus arrives on the scene and it's all grace and love. Thank goodness for that. There's loads we could talk about in that topic, but I want to highlight something else. And that's essentially that what people don't seem to realize is that Jesus' teaching is not easier than the demands of the Torah, but much more difficult. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And so it continues. Michael Gorman writes, I imagine some of the people listening turned to one another and said, you know, this is not good news. 
This is terrible news. It was bad enough before when we couldn't do these things. Now we can't even think about them. Jesus' teaching is very clear. He moves the focus from the outward to the inward motivation of our hearts, which always takes a lot more time and effort. So much more to be done when we're thinking of what's going on on the inside. And in our passage today, we have one of the clearest teachings that shows that while following Jesus is the best thing, the most incredible thing that anyone can do, it comes with a cost. Jesus' teaching shows that to encounter him is to experience real acceptance, amazing love, and deep peace. Yet, according to our passage, it also should come with an awareness of three things. Next slide. Thank you. Disciples must put Jesus before anyone or anything else. Disciples must take up their cross and follow Christ. Disciples should hand everything over to the one they call Lord. Wow. If we think about that for a moment, that's pretty heavy duty. But this is what discipleship is all about. So let's go to our text and see what we can find. Verse 25. There were large crowds traveling with Jesus. But it seems that something wasn't right. Jesus is such an amazing communicator that maybe the people wanted to hear his next inspired teaching. Or maybe the people were following because they wanted to see a miracle. Or maybe there were lots of people who were literally being swept along by the crowd. How about you? Why do you follow Jesus? Well, in our story, Jesus obviously felt the need to stop and explain just what it means to be one of his disciples. Verse 26, and this gives us the first part of our awareness. <clears throat> if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, both the Old Testament and the New Testament tell us to honor our parents. So what's going on here? Well, we need to realize that to hate is a Jewish idiom that means to love less. So for us, love and hate are strong feelings. But for Jesus's listeners, these are less words of emotion and more words of choice. So this is how, although you can't command emotions, Jesus commands us to love God and to love our neighbor. And so to hate our families indicates the total commitment a disciple must have for Jesus as they choose to put him first. Now, it's interesting when we list the categories. We have seven, father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, own life. Seven categories. Seven always points to completeness. So this is another way of saying every family member, including those not listed, like uncles or nieces or cousins or anybody else. So Jesus was stating that discipleship means a willingness to put his instructions higher than those of anyone else. 
including ourselves. Now, let's be clear. Jesus is not saying that we're supposed to give up our family relationships and responsibilities. This is about who takes priority. So Matthew records a similar teaching. Matthew 10, verses 34 to 39. Listen to this. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Whoa! Once again, these are really strong words. Why on earth did I choose this passage? In brief, we must choose Jesus whatever our family members say or do. And this can be difficult. In the days of the early church, as well as for some today, there is the choice of faith in Christ or submission to the family. When I worked in West Africa, I met numerous people who knew that following Jesus would mean being rejected by their families and even losing their spouse, their children, and all their worldly goods. And yet they still said that trusting in Christ was the best thing that they'd ever done. Jesus himself knows what it's like to struggle with his family. In Mark 3, verse 21, we read, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Or as one translation puts it, he's raving mad. Jesus wasn't and isn't, but he was making definite choices. Verse 27, and this gives us the second part of our awareness. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The cross was a powerful symbol in the first century. Carrying a cross meant death and facing ridicule and disgrace along the way. So everyone listening to Jesus knew exactly what he was saying. But for us, the language of carrying our cross has been corrupted by some faulty thinking. You might hear someone talk about a problem that they have at home or at work and say that the difficulty is the cross they have to bear. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Carrying your cross has nothing to do with chronic illness or awkward colleagues, or anything like that. Now, of course, those things are hard. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But Jesus is saying it's what we do voluntarily, what we choose to do as a consequence of our commitment to him. This is about dying to self and absolute surrender to God. Not a very popular message in our culture today. Carrying your cross is about intentional devotion and self-sacrifice. That in some places in our world, even today, might mean being imprisoned or tortured. 
For us, it might mean being rejected, being overlooked, being insulted or being mistreated because we follow Jesus Christ. If this is true for you, we would love to pray for you after the service or at the end of the service. If we jump down to verse 33, we have the third part of our awareness. Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Once again, this is not easy believism, but this is discipleship. And it's not extreme discipleship either. This is what the Lord requires of us. I wonder how distinctive do we look to other people? How radical is our approach to our life with our families and our friends, our neighbors, and so on? Imagine if we really took discipleship seriously. What a difference it would make to us and to those around us. Now, to give up everything doesn't mean sell your house, empty your bank accounts, and stop doing what you enjoy. That's not the message. It means to relinquish the importance that those things have over our lives and place everything under the authority of Jesus. So in other words, what are we doing with our house and our bank accounts and our hobbies? So continue to do them, but put them under, submit them to the one that we call our king. Now, you might have heard it said that a disciple is a learner. While that's true, it was and is a daily relational living experience. So the word apprentice, and I don't mean Alan Sugar, has a far more helpful picture, I just thought about that, for Jesus' followers. In the first century, there was a huge difference between being a student and being a disciple. A student is someone who wants to know what the teacher knows. And as I lecture in colleges, I get that all the time. They want to know what I know, particularly that they might pass an exam. So this is often our approach. We want to know about Jesus, know about the Bible, know about theology. But this makes it all rather cerebral. A disciple is someone who wants to be what their rabbi or their teacher is. So yes, we want to know what he knows, but it goes so much deeper than that. We want to become just like him. So when Jesus said, follow me, he literally says, walk as I walk. Walk as I walk. So we stay close to our rabbi. We imitate his actions. We learn and we put everything into practice each day in every situation. That's going to take time. It's a process. There is no quick way to do this. As the Jewish historian Shmuel Safrai explains, a disciple did not grasp the full significance of his teacher's learning except through prolonged intimacy with his teacher. So in Luke 6.40, Jesus says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. For us, that means if we want to become mature disciples, 
that we grow, we adopt certain habits and lifestyles that Jesus offers. I've realized that I'm a really slow learner because I need to learn something that God teaches me and then I need to relearn it and embarrassingly, I'll probably need to learn it again. It's a good job that Jesus is so patient. And apprenticeship leads us into this most profound of relationships where we walk with him and in our mistakes and in the things that we get wrong constantly. Jesus is there, guiding us, helping us, leading us into a deeper experience of who he is. So let's make it clear that in this three-part awareness of what discipleship is, that's not a requirement for salvation. We are saved by grace through faith. Alleluia. Jesus' death and resurrection has done it all, and we can't add anything to our freedom and rescue. The cost to be disciples was paid by Jesus. But the cost to live as disciples is for us to give ourselves 100%. Our passage is pointing to those daily choices and those daily commitments. Dallas Willard has this phrase, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. Grace is not opposed to effort. We're supposed to be working for it, not for our salvation, but for our sanctification and glorification, which are just fancy ways of saying to know Jesus more fully. If we go back to our passage in verses 28 to 32, Jesus gives two examples of adjusting our life's focus and objectives. So imagine there's a man who wants to build a tower. Very common in the first century, not so much today. So think house extension instead. He sensibly builds, or rather begins, by working out if he has enough money before he builds. Because if he builds that foundation and then finds that he's run out of funds and can't build any more, he will not only have wasted that money, but he will also be mocked and shamed by his neighbors. The man needs to consider if he has the resources to finish the task before he begins. In the second example, Jesus asks his listeners to imagine they're a king about to go to war. I'm sure you do that all the time. But if you've ever played the game Risk, you'll have the right idea. World domination. You need to consider whether you can defeat your opponent to take control of a particular nation when they have twice the number of soldiers that you have. For the king in our passage, if he decides that victory is unlikely, he'll send ambassadors to his enemy and ask the terms of a peace treaty. These two examples, we have Jesus explaining that disciples need to count the cost and not take discipleship lightly. Sometimes we can go to churches, and I'm not talking about Southside, where people almost plead that you make a decision for Jesus Christ. Jesus is the complete opposite. He wants us to count the cost and recognize the demands this puts on our lives to be true followers of who he is. So we need to be aware that accepting Jesus is only the beginning and not the ultimate goal. John Ortberg writes, we need to do what Jesus said. 
Practice loving a difficult person or try forgiving someone. Give away some money, tell someone thank you, encourage a friend, bless an enemy, say I'm sorry, worship God, go again. So first, our passage is all about discipleship. At times, following Jesus is tough. No one anywhere ever has found it easy all the time. I certainly don't. But in everything that happens in our lives, God is with us. And we can ask him to help us, to strengthen us, guide us, inspire us. I wonder what you need to ask Jesus for today. Secondly, Jesus makes some very weighty demands on his people. We've seen that in this passage. But we can all be faithless. We don't put Jesus first. We don't listen to him, but we do listen to other voices that pull us away from him. Yet God is quick to give us grace and mercy. So this morning, let's ask God to forgive us and make our lives more Jesus-centered so we live with undivided hearts. And thirdly, let's realize that we don't walk the Christian journey alone. Whatever our our blood relatives or our friends might say and do, However they might oppose us in our Christian walk, we have a church family with lots and lots of brothers and sisters. You're not all getting a Christmas card. But how can you encourage and support and pray for one another even today? The Savior of the world invites us into the greatest lifelong adventure imaginable. Jesus also calls us to hand over our lives to the one we call Lord. What is our response? Let's pause for a moment or two. Father God, we thank you again for your word. Now as we sing these songs May they not just be that they've got great tunes and are are led by amazing musicians, but actually these words penetrate our hearts and we offer these songs to you as a response to what we've heard this morning, what you've said into our lives. Lord, help us to be those disciples that follow you, that want to know you, that want to know how you work, how you live, how you act. We want to become just like you are. Wherever we are in our faith journey, if we've not made a commitment, may we be excited at the adventure that you invite us into. If we've already made that step of faith, then take us deeper into you. Take us higher up and higher in. Help us to see you with new eyes today and to make that commitment to you, the true and living God. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.